1: Before I get to my next guest, Bruce Devlin, I want to mention a couple more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Shrixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Shrixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Shrixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Shrixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Shrixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Shrixon. Check them out online at Shrixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the valley of Missoula, Montana that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear, Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing product. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Bruce Devlin. Let me give you some background on Bruce. He was born in Armandale, Australia. He won the 1959 Australian Amateur Championship. He turned pro in 1961, joined the PGA Tour in 1962, and won eight times from 1964 to 1972. He also won once out on the Champions Tour. He is one of only four players to make a double eagle at the Masters. He did so holing a forward on the par five eighth hole in 1967. He played in 61 majors on the PGA Tour, made the cut 51 of those times, and had 16 top 10 finishes. He had 31 professional wins in all. His last win on the PGA Tour came at the 1983 New Zealand Shell Open at 46 years of age. He was 57 when he beat Dave Eichelberger in a playoff to win the FHP Healthcare Classic on the Champions Tour. Bruce retired from competitive golf in 1998 to focus on his golf course design business. He's designed over 150 courses around the world. His courses have hosted several professional golf tournaments on all tours. Bruce is also one of the all-time great broadcasters. He worked for NBC and ESPN, and I am thrilled he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Well, you're welcome, Chris. Uh, Glad to be with you, sir.
1: Bruce, I want to start our time tonight by going back all the way when you were growing up in Australia. I'm curious, when did you start playing golf and who was the first person to put a golf club in your hands?
2: Well, I never had any aspirations to play golf, I can assure you of that. I grew up in a little town of about 15,000 people and we had three olympians hockey player. so we had a lot of uh young teams around our little town and we played field hockey day and night and i mean that's the only thing i ever wanted to do and then unfortunately my dad who liked to play golf he was about a 20 handicap a left-hander uh he had a bad automobile accident lost his right arm and uh and then when he come home and rehab, he said, "You know, I still want to play golf, and I need somebody to come play with me, and I've nominated you." So that's how I that's how I got into <laughs> golf. I I went with my dad when uh, when he wanted to play with one arm. Uh, interestingly, I said he was a twenty handicapper with two arms. He'd become a fourteen handicapper with one arm. Quite remarkable.
1: Wow. Yeah. So. At what point in your life did you finally say you know what I I'm, I'm pretty good at this golf thing?
2: Well, I I was uh, doing pretty good uh <clears throat> on amateur events and one particular weekend I I uh, I couldn't get back to school until Monday morning and I walked in and of course the first person I first teacher I saw was the was the head of the Christian Brothers school that I went to and he said to me Mr. Devlin, you got two choices you can stay here and do your studies or you can go and play golf. I said, well, thank you, sir. I'll go play golf. So I picked up my bag, went home. And when I got home, my dad was there having morning tea with my mother. And he said, you know, what the hell are you doing home? And I said, I told him the story. He said, okay, go get your overalls on. You're going to go work as a plumber. And uh, that's what I did. I worked with him. And then I went through technical college, become a master plumber and worked with him for about uh, five or six years until I did a couple of silly things. I won the New South Wales uh, Amateur Championship in 58, the Australian Amateur in 59, and then the Australian Openers in Amateur in 1960. And then my uh, my good friend and coach at that time, Norman Vaughn, to talk my... I come home from work one day, actually, he was in my uh, kitchen with my wife, convincing her to convinced me to turn pro and that's how it all happened
1: and like you mentioned you win the australian amateur championship in 1959 by defeating jack coogan two up at royal sydney two years earlier in 57 you finished runner-up to barry warren talk about the close call and then coming back two years later and winning it all
2: yeah well uh, barry warren beat me in melbourne and uh, uh that was that was a big shock for me because i was sort of the Considered the favorite, I guess, and and he just putted the eyes out of it. Thirty six holes, I just I just couldn't uh, I couldn't get the job done. I I ended up losing to him, and then uh, then uh, fortunately at Royal Sydney a couple of years later, I was able to win the amateur, which was very very nice.
1: You won nineteen times on the Australian New Zealand circuit. You had to be achieving like rock star status in australia what was life like for you as you're racking up all those wins
2: well you know back in the early days uh, it's not like it is today uh, i used to after i turned pro and came over here in 1962 to the to augusta for my first tournament as a pro i uh i couldn't i couldn't go back home uh, i couldn't not go back home and support you know my tour there and uh in those days, we never got paid a penny to go back. Uh, we just went back and played for the prize money. Uh, things have changed a little bit since then, obviously. But uh, yeah, I was, uh, I always have enjoyed my, uh, my golf in my home country. But I must say that, you know, that's one thing that if you want to, you know, if you want to play against the best in the world, you have to come over here to the United States.
1: You get your first PGA Tour victory at the St. Petersburg Open Invitational in 1964. You win that event by four strokes over Dan Sykes. What do you remember about getting your first win out there on the PGA Tour?
2: Oh, I remember being on the practice tee on Wednesday afternoon after the Pro-Am, and I was complaining to my good friend, Jack Nicholas, whom I come over here actually in 1960 and played the amateur, stayed with him in Columbus and we traveled together to St. Louis. But yeah, I was complaining to him Wednesday afternoon that I couldn't drive the ball, and I said, would you, you know, spend some time with me on the driving range? And and he spent some time with me on the driving range, and I went out and I think I ended up beating him by six shots. And he promised me that that was the last lesson I'd ever get from him. So that was the thing that stuck in my mind more than anything else that my good friend gave me a lesson and I walked him. (laughs)
1: Great. A couple of weeks later, you're at the 1964 masters. You're in second place, five strokes behind Arnold Palmer going into the final round. What was it like being in that position? And what was it like trying to chase down Arnold Palmer?
2: Well, I, I I started the last round off pretty good. I started birdie at one, birdie at two, birdie at three, and I was not actually playing with Arnold, I was playing with Gary, Gary Player. And uh, I was three under after three, and I hit a beautiful iron shot at the uh, fourth hole, and come up just a little bit short, sort of dropped into the bunker about 15, 20 feet from the hole. And. Gary hit it on the back left corner of the green, and then putted it eight foot by, and then putted another four foot by, and cut a long story short, he four putted before I got to play a bunker shot, and and I made a bogey. Uh, I hit a beautiful bunker bunker shot out about three feet and missed it I, I don't know whether I was upset with him for what what happened, but anyhow, I uh, <laughs> I ended up finishing fourth that year. But yeah, uh, you know, there for a moment, I thought I might have. Might have caught the big boy, but uh, he went on to win. What a great player.
1: A few years later in 1968, you're right back in the thick of things at the Masters. This time, you work your way into a share of the lead pretty quickly in the fourth round with birdies at two and three. And you and Roberto DiVincenzo are in a battle early in the round. And then Bob Golby and Bert Yancey would join that battle on the back nine. Take us inside what that final round was like.
2: Well, uh, like you said, I got off to a pretty good start there. But, uh, you know, I, I guess most of the time at Augusta in particular, if you miss the hole on the wrong side, uh, you know, your chances of making a putt are very slim and the opportunity to three-putt becomes more prevalent. But the thing I remember most about 1968 was was the Saturday. I went to the 11th hole with a three-shot lead Saturday. And I hit a beautiful drive, and I hit what I thought was an absolutely perfect six iron to the green at 11 with a short flag. And I didn't quite carry it far enough, and it kicked, hit on the down slope just short of the green and kicked left, and it went in the water. And I made about a 25-footer for an eight, uh, which... I mean, obviously blew my lead quickly, but then I made a couple of birdies coming back in, and like you said, started off pretty good Sunday. But just, uh, I guess guess that particular uh, major was about, like all of them, I just couldn't quite get it across the finishing line.
1: Let's rewind one year back to 1967, and you hit one of the all-time great shots in golf. You make double eagle on the eighth hole at Augusta National. What do you remember about that shot? Well, I
2: was playing with Doug Sanders, and uh, I I didn't get off to a very good start. Uh, I was a couple over par, and then I hit my drive at, at eight in the right rough. Oh, well, the first cut, actually, not in the rough. And, and I had a beautiful lie, and it was the first year they changed the green. And, uh, you know, the best way from, from the right-hand side for me to get in that green was to hit a, you know, a fairly good sized hook and I did I hit a beautiful hard running four wood that hooked about 15 yards and my dad was with me that year and he was up on top of the hill uh, I knew it hit a pretty good shot and the next thing I see him jumping up and down I thought oh boy that's got to be really close uh, and then you know the bush wireless got back to me in about four seconds and said no it's not close you hold it <laughs> so that was pretty wow. special. Sort of You interesting mentioned your relationship. Uh, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go right ahead. No, I was going to say it's interesting that uh, uh, Sarazen did it in 35 and then took another 32 years before I did it. And then uh, our friend from uh, the Woodlands, uh, oh, God, I've lost his name now. He he did it in, what, you 93? Yeah, he did it in 2002, I think, at the second hole. But four double eagles all at the different par five, which is quite remarkable.
1: You mentioned your relationship with Jack Nicklaus, and you were right in the thick of the majors during the prime of Jack Nicklaus's career. Talk about what it was like playing against Jack in the 60s and 70s.
2: Well, like I said, I... uh, I first came over here. uh I was picked again in the Australian team to play in the Eisenhower Cup matches at Marion in 1960, and uh, I I got a an opportunity to come and go to Columbus and got to meet Jack there, and and uh, we spent about four or five days practicing with Jack Grout, and then drove down to St. Louis, and we be, we really become very good friends, and then. Uh, in 1964, he came back to Australia with me, and uh, we played a lot of exhibitions there together. And uh, and then we got to the Australian Open again and played at the Lakes Golf Club. And uh, cut a long story short, I had to make par at the last hole, a par five, and I chose to lay it up short of the green about 70 yards and hit a pitch shot in there. And I hit a beautiful pitch shot in there, but it had too much spin, and I punt it back off the front of the green and uh, pitch it up, missed it from about six feet. So he and I tied. And then, of course, the next day, he, he put a little 67 to my 69. So that was a Australian Open that got away from me.
1: You won eight times on the PGA Tour over the eight-year period from 1964 to 1972. That was the heyday of the big three. Billy Casper was also a very dominant player during that time. He actually wrote a book titled "The Big Three and Me." Didn't you earn a seat at that table as well? Well, I had a you know
2: I had a nice career there during that particular part of my career on the on the tour, and uh, and at the same time as you mentioned earlier, I had gotten into the architectural business with my partner Robert Von Hagee, and we started building golf courses around basically around the world, and uh, I think that. You know, my wife always tells me, you know, you should never have got into that architect so early. You should have stuck to playing golf, and maybe she was right, but uh, it was pretty hard to, to do both things.
1: Speaking of Billy Casper, you bested him by a stroke to win the Carling World Open in 1966, which was played at Royal Birkdale. That had to have a feel of a major championship since where it was played at an outstanding course like Royal Birkdale. Talk about winning that tournament!
2: Yeah, that was a uh, that was a great great event to win there. I, I love Dirk Dale It's a great golf course, and the uh, you know it's the best uh, Philly Casper. You know, it's a bit of a feather in your hat, particularly when I had played with him the year before in the Western Open in the last round, last two rounds, because we were playing thirty six holes on uh, on Saturday back in those days, and I played with Casper the for the last two rounds at. In Chicago, and I went home to my wife on the Saturday night, and I said, "You know something? I'm not sure that I need to be in this business. So I played with a guy the day that just—I uh, just can't believe how good a player he is, and I'm not sure I could ever beat him." Uh, so it was—it was fun to win at uh, Royal Burghdale, because uh, you know they were—they were tournaments that you had to qualify for, sort of like a World Golf Championship in one respect, but. Uh, yeah it was a it was a great victory thank you
1: you had a lot of success playing in the state of texas three of your tour wins came there what was it about texas golf that suited your game so well
2: oh i don't know but uh I, probably probably the way i grew up uh the little town that i grew up in had plenty of wind uh it was a you know you had to learn how to flight your ball properly and uh i think that I think that probably was the reason why I played so well in Texas.
1: You played so well there. You were inducted into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame in 2014. What was it like when you got that call? And what was it like being recognized like that by the state of Texas?
2: Quite an honor, sir. Quite an honor to uh, to be in the Texas Golf Hall of Fame. Yes, they've uh, they're that's uh, a it's a great organization and. Uh, as we all know now, they've just moved from San Antonio. Now they're part of the PGA. They're up in uh, in Frisco in Texas. So uh, we're looking forward to when that all gets built and is up and running. So it'll be a lot of fun.
1: We're a few weeks away from this year's President's Cup matches. You team with David Graham to win the World Cup matches in 1970. You guys beat Roberto DiVincenzo and Vicente Fernandez to capture that team title. I envision that being sort of a President's Cup of that time. What was it like teaming with David Graham and winning that event?
2: Yeah, that was a, that was a great victory for us. We were a couple of young guys back in those days. And, uh, of course, Roberto was the, the king. And to do it in his hometown with uh, Sente was, uh, was nice to beat those guys. And I believe David ended up, I think David made a birdie on the last hole, ended up being the low stroke. Uh, player two for the tournament so it was a success
1: all the way around you were one of the very best broadcasters in the game in the 70s and 80s what made you give broadcasting a try
2: well i missed the cut in uh, at westchester one year and uh, i can't remember the name of the uh the organization the television group uh, at that time but the guy that was the uh, producer for the for the golf tournament that weekend, uh, got a message to me and said, Bruce, uh, soon as you missed the cut, would you like to spend, uh, you know, a couple of hours or an hour or so in the in the uh, booth on uh, Saturday and Sunday? And I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do? I might as well. So I did that. And then uh, at the end of that year, I got a call from from NBC to see if uh, if I had an interest in in going to work for them, which I did. So uh, that was how I got started. I I did a little sit-in for 2 days in Westchester, New
1: York. You've got your own podcast now for the good of the game with Mike Gonzalez. Talk about your show.
2: Oh, well, I tell you, Mike Gonzalez come up with that idea and, and to be quite honest with you, we're, we've we've had a lot of fun with it. I uh, will just run down a few stats for you. We've we've interviewed 50 of the World Golf Hall of Fame and major championship winners, 43 men and 7 women. Uh, The men have won, uh, uh, the men are, well, 31 in the World Golf Hall of Fame and the women 23, and we've interviewed 21 of those 54. And uh, we've, we've interviewed 13 Masters winners who've won 23 times, 14 U.S. Open winners that have won 22 Open. Twelve Open Championship winners at the 121 Open, so it's been a lot of fun. And uh, the last couple of months, we uh, we we've, we've moved over to to uh, bring the ladies in, uh, major winners in World Golf Hall of Famers. We started off with Kathy Whitworth and Laura Davies, and uh, we plan on we plan on uh, going as far as we can until uh, until I get a call from you know who. <laughs> At my age, at my age, it'll come a lot quicker than probably Mike. (laughs) But no, uh, Chris, it has been fun. It's been a lot of fun, to be honest with you. I, you know, when Mike Gonzalez asked me, he said, you know, Bruce, you, you had such a wonderful relationship with, with all the guys you played against. I think we could make a, make a good deal out of this, uh, this podcasting. Well, and, for your information, Chris, I'm not sure if anybody's told you, but we are, we are negotiating with the World Golf Hall of Fame, the PGA of America and the USGA to archive all of our uh, major championship and uh, World Golf Hall of Fame golf, both men and women. So, uh, we're doing this for nothing. We, Mike and I agreed we won't make a penny out of it. So uh if we can get if we can get these archived for the kids that come along thirty forty years from now and say, Oh, gee, who is this Jack Nicholas? And you know, if they can press the button and listen to Jack tell his life story, we think that would be worth it.
1: Absolutely it will be. Bruce, one more before I let you go. And like I mentioned in your intro, you've designed over a hundred and fifty golf courses worldwide. Talk about your design business.
2: Well, for, you know, for about 17 years there, I, I was with my partner and then he and I, he and I ended up splitting up in the mid nineties. And then I started to do it on my own. Uh, I guess my, you know, it's hard to pick favorites of golf courses that you built, but, uh, the golf course that I built down in, uh, Beaufort, South Carolina called Secession is, is one of my favorites. And then I built a golf course at St Andrews really in Scotland. And uh, you know that's not the easiest place in the world to build a golf course and get people to talk about it, but it's at the Fairmont Hotel. It's called Pittick's Den, and uh, it's a it's a fun golf course to play. It sits right on the uh, right on the escarpment of the bay coming out of St Andrews. So yeah, we you know we've, we've built a lot of golf courses in, around the world, Australia, most of them here in the United States, but. It was a, it was a rewarding great number of years to be quite honest with you. We had a lot of fun doing it.
1: Well, Bruce, how can our listeners stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether that's following you online or over social media?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, well, I have a family foundation called the Devlin Foundation and we hold a golf tournament uh, in Buford for junior golf. We raise a, raise a lot of money for junior golf. Uh, and uh it's uh it's the Devlin Foundation dot org. And of course you can always get to me through uh through um for the good of the game.
1: Well Bruce, it was a huge thrill having you as part of the show tonight. I hope we get the privilege of having you come back and share more of your stories and insights with us, and I hope that time is very soon.
2: Well, thank you, Chris. It's been an honor to be on your show. We've uh, I'm sorry it took us a little while to get to do it, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, let's do it again sometime. I'd appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
1: Me too. Thank you so much, Bruce, for being here tonight. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to us catching up again soon. Thanks, sir. Bye. That is the great Bruce Devlin, folks. Boy, it just doesn't get much better than that. I can't thank him enough for being generous with his time and, and being a part of the show tonight. The is the website for his foundation and um, Buford, South Carolina. Boy, I can't wait to get over there and check out his golf course succession. That I'm sure is fantastic. But again, one of the greatest players in the history of the game and then a great broadcaster on top of that. And so many stories. I'm sure I could sit there and listen to him tell stories all night long. I hope I really get the privilege of having him back on the show again soon. And by soon, I mean very soon. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Tom Pertzer, Bob Estes, and Bruce Devlin for joining me tonight. Next week, scheduled to join me are former PGA Tour pro Neil Lancaster. will be making his Next on the Tee debut, as will former LPGA Major Champion Julie Inkster. Really looking forward to having Julie as part of the show. And our friend Chris Finn from Par for Success will be back. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you come back and be a part of it with us. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcasting site and app, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podcast.co, Audioboom, Player.fm, Podbean. Folks, if you have a favorite podcasting site or app, just type in Next on the T in the search bar. We're probably on that one, too. Please check out our website, NextOnTheT.net, to see what our upcoming guest schedule looks like. Plus, we've got links for you there for recent episodes and individual guest segments. So, whether you've got 20 minutes or two hours, we've got great content on there available for you for free. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I know there are a lot of great golf podcasts out there for you to choose from. I am very thankful that you're making next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.